and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, fellow coach, Jonathan Marcus. John, how's it going, my man? My man, it's that time. We're back, baby. Giving the people what they want. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And before we get into today's episode, you know what's coming. We do not have sponsors on that show because we sponsor ourselves, which means we are trying to push the greatest coaches education, the greatest learning platform there is. And network. Out there. And the most important thing is now the network. My, oh, wow. It, it is. It's been popping. It's a network with over 300 coaches involved. And, you know, I'm not going to name drop everyone, but we've got people who are at the highest level in the collegiate world, the highest level coaching uh, medalists and champions at the world level. And we've got some of the best high school coaches in the country competing for top spots in terms of the best team in the in the u.s these are people who are already winning and who are signed up because they understand it's a process and you know it's we should have them on the podcast honestly i mean that's and we're just humbled and thankful for them to be fellow scholar members yes we should that's a good idea Way to, way to think about it, John. We're going to start that because, you know, Ooh. I was in our in our scholar clubhouse. I was reading the other day and we had, again, one of the best high school coaches in the country, like giving us a play by play of his state meet, their training going into it, all that good stuff. And, you know, state champion, lowest score ever at the state meet for this uh, this coach fantastic stuff and it's just sitting there play by play here's what we're doing it's a it's awesome it is i mean it's amazing when everyone you know it's like thanksgiving everyone eats everyone comes to the table with something to offer and everyone gets a little something and that's the thing man about the scholar program is it's not for me and steve it's for everyone involved so get involved sign up we charge the least amount of money you could possibly charge a buck a day i mean it is with inflation probably the best deal on the internet. <laughs> I'm going to say that right now. You know, we, we try to keep the cost low because we want everyone to be in on this goodness. All right. So join us, get on board. And without further ado, let's get into today's topic. Getting the most out of people. How to inspire, encourage, and sustain excellence oh that's a heady topic man all right (laughs) i don't know if we're going to solve the world's problems in this one but that's what the title implies but i i think you know john as we thought about this topic as you know you are the topic man you came up with it i think it's this is what we do as coaches like we spend so much time thinking about the x's and o's and the well, you know, should we do this interval training, this VO2 max session, this lactic threshold session, this critical velocity, whatever you want to call it. Um, but our job as coaches is how do we get the most out of people? The training is the easiest part, but how do we get them to get as close to fulfilling their potential as possible consistently over the long haul? And then how do you measure or put a you know marker on what that potential is and how close or how far away they are from it that's also the hard part as well because as much as we love models and models are useful tools whether they're mental models training models what have you they are all just metaphors right it's like system one system two thinking from you know daniel kahneman and thinking fast thinking slow right The brain, there's no division. It's one complete unitary whole. There is no system one, system two. It's just a reductionist metaphor we use to think more clearly about it so that we can essentially take things apart and put them back together. Human beings are complex, adaptive systems, always changing and evolving. Hormone cascades come in, come out based on interpretations of the environment, stressors, etc. So, 
even if you have an athlete and you think linear periodization or linear progression, you get faster every year, is a good way to benchmark their progress, it might not be because they might get faster and yet they might be at the same place from a competitive standpoint that they were two or three years ago. I'll give a good example of a lot of what we're seeing now in the professional ranks, right? As super shoes are becoming more democratized and everyone has access, uh, equal access to them. We're not seeing, you know, individuals make these big leaps in competitive comparative performance finishing position. We're seeing the times get better, but so is everyone else's. So the person who's finishing seventh, still finishing seventh, albeit it's a faster seventh than it was, you know, three, four, five, six years ago, but it's still seventh, right? So when you get, when you lose that kind of newness of, oh, I ran faster and this potential of if I run faster, then I'll place higher, but then it's not happening because everyone else is ranked faster because of some technology device that's implemented. Now, how do you start to continue to develop that person and sustain excellence and get them one step up the ladder, so to speak? That's really difficult to do. And I'd love to hear, you know, your ideas, Steve, and about how, you know, to go about creating a positive, sustainable solution. Yeah, you know, I I really think as coaches, we've been gifted this couple year period of the super shoes, which makes the job easier because people haven't like recalibrated their expectations and it's starting to occur, right? So we've fallen down this kind of like, oh, I'm running faster. So that means I'm better ideal because... We have these people who spend a lot of time in the non-super shoe era um, transitioning to the super shoe era, which it's easier to run faster time-wise. And that that's going to slowly fade away, right? And then we're going to have these, these faster times be normalized. And I, I think this is going to be the crucial period for coaches of, well, did what I was do, did my training, did my work, did my coaching actually like make people better to a significant degree or did I just get a boost from the super shoe that kind of blinded, mm-hmm. you know, stuff. And it's really exciting. But, it's really, I mean, the excitement will wear off though. That's the thing. It's really exciting yeah. at first, but now that they put limits on stack heights, you know, and such, and they've made it. So you have to democratize and put out a certain number of shoes. So people have some, somewhat equal access to the latest and greatest tech um, you know, that excitement will filter away because we're going to come to a similar plateau that we were prior, you know, in Super Shoe Era. It's just everyone, you know, the rising tide will lift all boats. Everyone will now be a little faster. Exactly. So let, let's talk about excellence, okay? When I think of excellence, I always, this quote from the comedian Steve Martin comes to mind. And he said, Anyone can be great. There's always a night when you're on it. But what about the next when you don't have that hot audience and you've got to be just good? That's the hard part. So, and Martin's talking about comedy, obviously. But I think often what we think of is when we think of excellence, we think of, oh, it's our best performance. It's our PR. It's showing up and doing the best that we ever have, and et cetera, et cetera. And what Martin is saying is that's easy on the right day because we're always going to just stumble upon that perfect race when everything clicks, everything goes well, and we maximize our performance for that day. And then we sit there and we're like, oh, great, I'm a new runner. I ran this fast. I achieved this. This is great. Um But the hard part isn't doing it when everything's aligned. The hard part, and I think this is what excellence is, is it's being good day after day, week after week, month after month. Or in another another way to look at this is it's raising the floor, not just shooting for a higher ceiling. And I think that's excellence because, you know, our title here is sustained, right? How do we get sustained? And I think this is, if you look at the greats, 
like a Kipchoge, for example. His marathon record is unprecedented. And he's not on during every single one of those marathons, but he has raised his floor so much, so it's so close to the ceiling, that his pretty good day is good enough, is better than everybody else's. You know, he doesn't have to be perfect, but because he's consistently very good and as good as raised so high, then that comes across as excellence to the rest of us, you know? And, you know, maybe another way to see it is I'm just going to throw, we're just going to keep using analogies and metaphors here, but it's the baseball player like a Ichiro Suzuki or a Tony Gwynn who year after year after year hits above 300 and you know what you're going to get versus the streaky player who sometimes who has a great year, hits 40 home runs, but then the next year the pitchers figure him out and he sucks, right? And you're like, oh, what happened? It's just great guy. Well, people figured him out, right? His good, his when he was on, it was great. But as soon as he's figured out, as soon as he's, you know, not perfect, when everything doesn't align, his good isn't that good. So to me, it's how do we set athletes up so that we can raise that floor, so that we can be very good? And I think Kipchoge provides the model um, because he's the philosopher king of running, obviously, but many others have. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about Sarity. I'm sure we'll talk about other coaches from various sports and runners and athletes. But it's it's really like being intentional on what you're trying to do and cutting out the noise that often um, often drags us away from excellence. Yeah, I like that. I, you know, I would add to that um, that excellence is the ability to sustainably overcome setbacks and doubts. Because that's really, I think, at the heart of it, right? When you reach a pinnacle, you reach an apex, you run a PR, you you know, um, do something you've never done before at a high level. You, you know, win a race, win a championship, what have you. There's the, we like to fantasize and create a narrative that it's just all like roses and sunshines and buttercups and just really nice, easy along the way, slow, steady march to that, um, mountaintop. But we know the process isn't linear. We know there's setbacks. We know there's, um, you know, dead ends. There's just a lot of different adversities one must face. So excellence really, to me, is about how do you uh, respond and react to adversity? Because it's going to happen. We just can't predict it at all. No training plan I've ever seen has been like, all right, in the third week, in the fourth cycle, you're going to have this adversity. And here's what we're going to do. And you just can't predict it. So it doesn't matter whether, you know, if you want to use the uh, example of Kachoge, where the insoles of your shoes start falling out early on in the marathon and you keep going and you still, you know, run a fast time and win, right? That's adversity 101. You get a stomach cramp, you get a blister. A lot of people will succumb to that and surrender. Excellence is about that overcoming, that desire to overcome that um, unpredictable moment or moments when it gets really dark and bleak. And I think if we look at a lot of narratives and like, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero myth, that's really what it's about, right? The hero myth, part of it is this receding from normal, being faced with some, you know, call to action, some adversity, getting beat up a little bit, uh, getting set back a little bit from who that, you know, uh, protagonist is destined to be the transformation the you know they're not yet a butterfly they're still a caterpillar and they're they're being um throttled and they're being suppressed to stay a caterpillar but it's that impulse that ability that ingenuity to create a solution when all things look in doubt and bleak that we esteem and that's the myth you know uh that any entrepreneur any coach any athlete should really resonate with because there will be points and there will be setbacks. I mean, we can look at any career of any athlete in running and, you know, there was points where like, all right, 
you know, like Henry Rowan is a great example, right? Amazing set, three world records by himself, no rabbits, 80 days. And then it's like fell off really hard and then came back again, ran a 1545 K. And then, you know, a couple months later runs almost a world record in the 5k 13 flat, you know, it's, so we should esteem those types of people rather than necessarily esteeming the people who are always constantly, um, you know, on top in, you know, what I call um, kind of the, the it's always sunny world where it's like, it's always like, you know, Southern California, it's always sunny in 75, no real ups, no real downs. You get, you know, it's very predictable that we gravitate and crave that, but that's not reality. And that's really not excellence. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. And I think if you look at, okay, what allows us to overcome, what allows us to reach this sustainable success, I think that a lot of it is like having the freedom to perform, which means the better we get at something, the more we have these external factors that drag us away from what makes us good right? So we get really good. We get some attention. We get notoriety. We get accolades. We get pats on the back from other people. Our attention gets diverted. Our motivators shift. We get financial security, maybe a nice payoff, whatever have you. All of those factors drag us away from what got us to this point, which is deep meaningful work driven by like some intrinsic worth or intrinsic value right and and the more that like the the noise i'll call it takes you away um the harder it is to overcome those obstacles because it it seems like oh, it's it's not worth it and i think this is why you know i use kipchoge a lot but this is why you look at well, why is he successful over the long haul is he has consistently trained himself and insulated himself against some of these pulls that take him away from what he knows to do very well. And it's no different than uh, why Percy Sarity moved down to Port C, had Herb Elliott and crew come down there and said, we're going to do this stuff in this little town with some you know sand dunes and eat fresh raw food and like forget the rest of the world because that has like this this centering effect to take you away from all these external things that drag you away and 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 it's even more difficult to ask right now because like the world is crazy and the world is also hyper connected and hyper status driven and that's you know I think something that if we take the Kipchoge and Sarity analogy that we look at is they were not distracted, right? And so this concept of deep work, you know, Cal Newport's book is a great example of that. But you got to see social media. You got to see a lot of things for what they are, which are distractions that take you away from what you are driving to create. Because a Sarity was right. You know, the athlete and the coach are both co-creators of something. And it doesn't matter what you're creating, what sport you want to call it. You're manifest trying to manifest something that doesn't exist right now later. And you're trying to make it of a high, of the highest grade of quality you can, right? From wherever you're starting. So in order to do that, you must be very, very focused and also have a high degree of clarity about what you want. And clarity about what you want also means not, or what you, um, you know, not being uh, distracted by what you don't want. So you have to make a decision. <laughs> and the decision is the toughest part because it's the negation of everything else that is really the decision. You're saying, I'm not going to focus and not be distracted and not give any merit to all these other, you know, opportunities, all these other um, points of view, all these other ideas and concepts. And you know, so on and so forth. It's like getting married, right? When you get married, it's not just a decision to marry and spend a lifetime with that one person. It's also a decision to sever and cut off exploring 
life or getting to know anyone else as well. So you can go deep and narrow with that one person and have a lot more depth of a relationship throughout eternity, right? It's a heady proposition. It's the same situation here. You know, it's Saturday's best books, Success in, um, what is it? Sport and Life and How to Become a Champion really give a, a lot of insight into that. And, you know, it, to kind of piggyback on what I was saying, like here on page 131 of uh, Success in Life and Sport, he says, be glad of setbacks, disappointments. They teach us more than a fortuitous success. And that's the concept, right? Is it's not going to be an easy path. It's not going to be a clean sailing path. But in order to develop, sustain, grow, encourage as a coach excellence, you got to be up front with the athlete of saying, look, we're on this journey together and I got your back no matter what, as long as we're aligned and on this journey. And there will be setbacks. We're going to try to make it so there's as less bumps in the road as possible, but it will get rocky and bumpy and that's okay. That means we're it's part of the process. It actually means we're on the right track. And the goal is to figure out how do we overcome them? It's kind of like skill acquisition, right? A lot of people, you know, and I was when I was younger, I you look for the most perfect correct technique, and you you're trying to find this holy grail of what's the perfect running form, what's the perfect correct technique. Actually, the best technique is the technique that has the minimal amount of variation in the system depending on different impulses in the environment, a turn, different footing. And the tolerance for the people who are masters of craft is a much narrow tolerance, but there's still deviation. There's still variation because the brain is trying to make micro adjustments every foot contact or every throw or every pitch. But the people who are the best, like the Ichiros, the Tom Brady's, the people who continually deliver, their tolerance of variation is very, very narrow versus those quote unquote streaky people, streaky athletes, very wide tolerance of variation. And so that's really what we're trying to do whenever we're talking about motor skills or performance. And, you know, as you said with Kipchoge, Steve, is a very sh uh, shallow or small bandwidth of, of variation versus this kind of highly oscillating swinging back and forth. And you get that a lot with younger athletes too. Their motor skills, you know, when they're fresh, are fantastic. Oh, the form and technique looks great, very powerful day. And then when they get distracted or they get tired or really fatigued, then it all breaks down and they're like a completely different athlete. And like they can't make the bucket or they can't even, you know, express a hundred meters at their race pace that they're able to do just fine yesterday. That's part and parcel of the learning process. Yeah, it's interesting that it, like that variation idea. Um and how broad or narrow you can go is interesting, not only in terms of motor skill and development, but also in terms of just kind of like this idea of how deep or narrow do you go in exploring your skill set. You know, while you were talking about failure there, it reminded me of a different Steve Martin quote, which I'm just since we already talked about him, um, I think is is important. And he said, I feel sorry for young comedians who don't get to bomb. The value is knowing how your material works on the worst of nights. And it, it's that it, we're talking about excellence and maybe, and we talked about a little bit of the freedom to, to perform. And maybe part of that is you learn how not to fear that failure. It's like this subtle shift in this mindset, right? Steve Martin sitting there talking about, well, there's value in bombing. There's value in having my worst performance of the year or life or whatever have you. Sarity's talking about failure and the need for failure, right? And how it can help you grow, learn, and develop. And a lot of times we give kind of a head nod to failure and be like, oh, yeah, 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 we should fail. Like, yeah, treat it positively. But what's clear in these guys um, and others is they literally, like, truly believe, okay, how can I learn and grow from this? How do I get better? And it, even if you look at the research, you know, you talked about, well, excellence is founded in overcoming. Well, 
There's a clear line of research that's called talent needs trauma in sports, which is not trauma in terms of, you know, PTSD, extreme trauma, but trauma defined as they had to overcome and deal with some obstacle, right? They had to, you know, manage getting cut and not have or some severe injury or even in some cases I know in this field, like having, you know, coming from a background with a bunch of brothers and sisters and not a lot of resources and all that stuff, like the overcoming of something like the best, the people who make it to the highest level of sport. And in this research, it's professional sport across across a, a variety of them like have a better shot because they've gone through something traumatic and again trauma defined in a slightly different way but gone through something maybe i'll call it difficult and navigated and figured out their way to the other side and if we think of what we do in sport often it's not to say okay how do we navigate this let people figure it out I'm going to support, but they need to navigate. Instead, what we often do as coaches, as parents, as administrators is take the bulldozer approach, right? Instead of making people figure their way through the, the, the briar patch or the, the tough part, we just say, Oh, don't worry. Let me, let me hop on my bulldozer, clear a straight path for you. And like, this will be the easiest point from A to Z. And it might be in terms of you look at it, you're like, oh, they got a clear path. Let's go. But what you neglected there is you didn't. Now they haven't developed the skill set to get through that tough patch, which then helps them when when they reach that level of performance, which they're capable of. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the bulldozer approach, Steve. It's... uh you know, all too common and rightfully so we as teachers, coaches, parents, uh, you know, agents of change and inspiration, we want to make it an easier path for the next generation than say we had. It, it, it makes sense um, from an evolutionary survival hardwiring mechanism. But at the same token, too, there is value in the struggle. That is where you learn uh, a lot about yourself. And I found more and more as I've evolved as a coach is to let people struggle, um, but ask them open-ended questions along the way. You know, it's when I was a young coach or when I initially am working with someone, there's a lot of like explaining, right? There's a lot of like telling people, okay, here's how it is. Here's my philosophy. Here's what's going on. But after that initial introduction of kind of explanatory, um, you know, coaching or explanatory orientation, then it's stepped back and ask open-ended questions, ask them, all right, here is the, you know, here's this problem. Here's the competency we're trying to engage. Here's, we're trying to get you faster, trying to get you stronger. How do you think we should solve that? And just hear them out, hear their interpretation. And it might be quote unquote wrong or not aligned with what you think the next steps are. Or you might have some gem of an insight that the athlete gives you uh, that you didn't know before that they had an awareness about, whether it's self-awareness, awareness about the training process, awareness about their own weaknesses or uh, opportunities. That power of the open-ended question is a part of the excellence sustaining process. Because only when we question and only when we have a healthy inquiry can we then start to uh, see faults or gaps and then create and manifest solutions. And that's really what it's about, right? Coaching is about provisional solutions. The best solution I can make with the knowledge I have for now, and it will change and update ideally as circumstances and situations change, and as your education, knowledge, and understanding in general and about that specific individual change. And this is why you see in the scholar program, people at the top of their game right now coming in and being a part of this clubhouse in this program is because they understand the need to continue to expand their horizons constantly to meet new challenges and opportunities in different and better ways that are on the horizon that they don't even know are there. And the only way to do that is through exposure and education and expansion by having this 
mindset that everything you know is provisional and it's okay that it's going to change because it will change provided you are open to that updating just like your smartphone. I love it. Just like your smartphone. Some some good analogy from the phone. Um, not all negative. So, you know, the the thing I like that explorer mindset is is so crucial. And I think if we're talking about achieving excellence, it's vital because here's what here's what the opposite of that is, which is what I'll just call the the stuck or cemented mindset, right? You achieve a little success. Maybe you start to, you tie your beliefs to something. You say, this is the way, this is how I've always done it. And then you're stuck, right? When we get that entanglement or that fusion so that we we start tying our sense of self or sense of worth or identity of, of, you know, what we think works to us, we're in trouble, right? This is why as, as a writer, I have to be really difficult about this because it's very easy. And, and John, you as well, as like when you're a, I shouldn't say as a writer, when you put out content in the world, it's very easy to get stuck because you say it, you speak it, you write it, you put it out there, and all of a sudden someone somewhere thinks like, oh, this is Steve or John's viewpoint. This is their system. This is their their thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they take and it then as a static very- thing rather than as a point in time. Exactly. And what happens is like... If we took that and says, oh, man, this is what I'm known for. This is my system. Like, I can't deviate. Then you stop growing. You stop learning. Right. And it's very easy to do. And one and early I talked earlier, I talked about how success puts all these things in our way and that excellence is really about kind of navigating those things and making sure they're not pulling us in the wrong direction. This is one of those those items where we just get cemented, we get stuck because like we tie ourselves to something so much that like we stop growing. It's as if, you know, the example I give is I get asked a lot about Science of Running, which I think is a a great book, especially at that time. Um, But people will ask questions and they'll be like, oh, do you believe this? And I don't have any example, but I'm like, Oh, yeah, I probably should have written that in a different way. I'm not sure about that one. Um, and that's not to say the work isn't isn't good or useful or whatever have you, but it was written or it came out in 2014, which means it was written in 2013. If I'm still doing the same exact thing, then that's the problem. Now, if I nail if if 80% of the book is is still relevant, still good, and only uh, maybe I two, three percent is is stuff I'd throw out, then great. I'm doing a great job. But if it's all, if I say, nope, hundred percent, like follow this exactly, no changes ever, then we're, that's a very bad sign. <laughs> I know, you know, we need to do the update we've been talking about doing for a long time. Hey, if you're listening right now and you're a scholar and you want Steve and I to create the second edition, the updated version of Science Running, because this is what books do all the time, especially textbooks. They update when the knowledge is newer and better. Let us know in the clubhouse so it can kind of kick Steve in the butt and do it. <laughs> I've been talking about it for years because it's it's a great starting point. But yeah, it's there's a lot of provisional knowledge in there and there's a lot of new research, evidence, and uh, practice and and um anecdotal evidence as well from coaches that kind of either refute and or compound and verify some of the stuff in there and it'd be great to again create a second edition and just kind of like a general textbook every 10 years update it because that's the point is all this knowledge is provisional you even saw this in the classics of how they train right um by Fred Wilt on middle distance runners, spurs and hurdlers and long distance runners. He updated it, you know, about once or twice with different editions with new updates, better updates on how people were training as during that period, 60s, 70s and 80s, 
training paradigms were rapidly evolving and shifting as people were exposed in expansion of new concepts and ideas, and then also trying to integrate them to be successful. Yep. It, it, you know, it is, it's, I hear you. It's on, it's on the long list of projects and ideas <laughs> that I need to get through. Um, but also the, but this, the thing about excellence is um, it's also a feeling, right? And you have to capture that feeling and the person as a coach. And we have to capture it in ourselves as a coach. And it's by doing something, like you said, that you don't think you can do or that's brand new to you, essentially. This is why I love the all you got, you know, rep by that Ron Warhorse use. He's like, at the end of a workout, when the most tired, you know, and famously it's in like the Michigan workout, right? It's 400 meters at all you got. And there's no expectation. Just give it everything you have right now. We don't know how fast you're going to run that 400. You may get through 200 and just the wheels come off. That's okay. We're going to go 400 meters at all you got. And I started implementing this, you know, a couple of years ago with like uh, my milers and mill distance runners. At the end of every workout, it was just like, all right, jog up a little bit. No matter what workout we did, long, steady workout, grueling, like, you know, 3K uh, rep workout, speed workout, didn't matter. You're going to run a 400 meter all you got to get you one callus to the demand that you're always going to meet in the last lap of a race. It doesn't matter how good or bad you feel on the track. You're going to have to produce four mirrors at all you got, but also too just to maintain the explorer mindset and to create this feeling of, you know, you have this feeling of anxiety. You have this feeling of, I don't know what I can do. I don't, you know, like there's the expectation is kind of so variable because you're tired, you're fatigued, you just went through this like workout session, you're broken down, right, a little bit. But then to to survive it and see it didn't hurt and that it was okay and that you did it over and over and over again, you then understand as an athlete or as a middle distance runner, no matter what, I always have this tolerance of time in my system, depending on who you are. And like, it's going to be what it's going to be. And I'm just going to do it. But you can feel that excellence and practice on a you know weekly, bi-weekly basis um, and then be able to translate that to race day and give you make you better equipped with anticipation about what it's going to feel like and the fact that you can do it. Because I think a lot of people are stunted through um, you know manifesting excellence for them because of anxiety and insecurity, and questioning if they can do it. And they hesitate when that decision moment comes. And nine times out of 10, they get super frustrated afterwards because they didn't make the decision when the decision moment came in the race. But then they might have not also been equipped psychologically with the tools and confidence that they can make a decision and it will work out, you know, favorably. Well, you know, this is, all right, so let's get into the details here. This is like, this is just patterning, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is is you're you're trying to pattern like a response to discomfort or to like struggle, all that stuff. And this is where you know we we talked at the beginning of you know what do coaches who kind of coach towards excellence do very well? It's not just the X's and O's; they pattern, like they train this stuff up. They teach athletes in workouts right in practice this becomes something that you're working on you know it's the it's the old and i know we quote them a lot but and reference them a lot but it's the serity watching the workout and de deciding in the moment what they should do or even lydiard or igloy. like or igloy. like deciding in the moment why do they do that part of it is because yes physiologically but also psychologically of okay what am i what am i trying to test here or even the great or um the very good uh high school coaches like uh bill aris from fayetteville manlius with his girls team that dominated for so long who was a sarity kind of disciple is you you look at their training and you just mentioned ron warhurst like Scott Rasco would do this. We'd go rep by rep every once in a while and throw in and he'd throw in some crazy crap at the end, right? 
which is why Alan Webb would run like a 149-800 at the end of a workout, you know? Because that's what Rasco would do every once in a while. And it's not, or the Scott, sorry, I'm just going down the example. I love it. Scott Simmons, Scott yeah. Simmons the hammer. The hammer of, oh, yes. You know? <laughs> um, and it's the, the solution isn't, oh, well, I'll just throw in something really hard. <laughs> like that. that's what we're going to do. It's like, no. These coaches are pushing the button at the right time to try and ingrain and get that person in that 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 space where it's like, okay, they got to make the decision. Like they got to make that. They got to ingrain that. Let's like, oh, crap, I'm really tired, but let's go. Let's figure our way out. Let's figure our way through this. You know, sometimes it's at the end. Sometimes it's like uh, Scott Simmons hammer interval. It's in the middle. Why would you do it in the middle? Simple, because Simmons is like, let's throw in a really hard 400 and then go back to the workout. And then, man, you got to figure out how to <laughs> how to get through this thing. Yeah. You know, like you just ran, I don't know, a 53 second 400 in the, in the middle of 16 by 400, you know, on rep number eight. How in the world with all that fatigue are you going to get back to running 63s or whatever you were trying to run? It's not going to be the same feeling of ease and comfort it was before, right? Nope. Yeah. It will not. Mm -mm. So, and they're not doing this all the time, but every once in a while, it's, it's, these are the, this is why, you know, good coaches, you know, figure out these workouts and they're like, well, let's see what we can do here. Let's see how we put these decisions in there. Even Warhurst, like famed Michigan workout. No, it's not like all out, but you look at, you look at what are they doing? They're running a mile hard and then they're going and running something steady and coming back and doing 1200 meters hard, you know, and then steady. Well, that steady really sucks when you just ran a mile in 420 or whatever. Oh, it yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> I know? did that in college. I mean, we did that working on college. It sucked <laughs> but it got us fit <laughs> yeah but all it is is like well you're trying to navigate stuff and the traditional workout often doesn't make it where you're navigating stuff because you know the you already know the solution if coach tells me hey hey go run six by 800 with two minutes rest well guess what i've already kind of figured out what i can do like how i can divvy up the energy to make it just where I'm going to fall apart at the end. You know, I know about how many, you know, what pace I can go and I can adjust as I go along and I know how many reps I have and I know how to divvy out my energy and can all that stuff, which is a great skill to learn, but there's certainty there. And when things are certain, we don't learn from that. Like we don't learn as much because we're not making that decision. Yeah, that's the bulldozer approach 101, right? It's uh, yeah. this concept of, oh, well, the best way to run a race is even pace the whole way through. It's like, no, that's not reality. Like, that's a physiological concept constructed in a lab, and that's great. But the reality is races start off fast, you settle in, and then you pick it up at the end. That is the reality. You look at most world records, that's how they run. The fat, The fastest K is the first K and the last K, and, you know, on the track or the first lap in the last lap, like that mid period lull is okay. And actually what you're trying to train is you're trying to train raising the floor of that mid race lull to be as fast as possible so they can get out fast and then finish fast. And when you start to take this, you know, even paced approach to things, even though it might sound good and nice, it does not create robustness, it creates very fragile athletes, as you said, Steve. And that's the brilliance of like, say, the Dillingers as well, who would use the simulation or the 30-40 drill, right? Where 200 meters fast, 200 meters steady, so on and so forth, and pulsate like that. Or always having built in 300 meter cut downs at the end of a workout with a 100 meter jog. And throughout the year, as they get fitter and fat, they get, as athletes get fitter, those got faster, Right. But it taught you adversity. It taught you how to endure. It it taught you the psychology and also the physiology was really sound, right? Because even Scott Simmons hammer intervals injects a high degree of lactate and acidosis in the system. And now you got to keep running fast and figure out how to buffer that. That's what Warhurst Michigan drill does. Inject acidosis, back off 
buffer the lactate, inject back off buffer, so on and so forth. Lactate clearance 101. Um, and it's a great, great, great example of how they all came to this, you know, say maybe Scott, who's a little bit more, uh, you know, on top of the sports science and also evolved a little later in the coaching zeitgeist as well. But early on, no one was talking about lactic clearance in the 80s, you know, 70s. They just figured out that type of what they call surge uh, intervals worked and it worked really well. <laughs> so there's something to be said for that. And like we talked about, the adversity component is really key because you also get the psychological confidence of patterning that you can handle whatever crap's thrown at you. Um, you know, I was reading a old 1980s track and field news, and it talked about a young woman from Oklahoma who had set like the um, fastest mark in the 10K in the country. And what happened was she with three laps to go, they rang the bell and they rang the bell. And so they thought it was her last lap. The, the, the counter miscounted and they figured it out as she was sprinting. She ran 68 for her third to last lap. And they're like, no, you got two more to go. And she's like, oh my God. So she keeps running. So it's like, she backed off from 68 to 80. And then like her last lap was like 97. It was brutal. Right. But she finished and she finished with like hands down the best time in the country in the 10K. Like by over, like it was like 32 low in the 80s, right? Which at the time was like over a minute and a half faster than any other collegiate woman there. And they asked her about it afterwards in the interview. And it was like, oh, well, how are you able to deal with that adversity? He goes, oh, well, I just train with the boys all the time. I never, we don't have girl distance runs in Oklahoma. So I just train with the boys and they'll do all that stuff all the time. They'll just pick it up and just start sprinting and try to drop me. And so I'll just stay with them no matter what. Like it sucks, but you know, that's just, you know, it's like, that's what I do. And it was like, holy crap, amazing, like backstory, right? But if you just look at the time in the, you know, annals and the archives and you go, oh, 32, 22, that's, that's okay time, I guess, in 1982. But it's, if you're, if your antennas are up and you're looking for excellence, that's a clear, clear, clear sign of how it was patterned and cultivated and then expressed in at a highly adverse moment. Yeah, I love that story. I've never heard it. So that that's fantastic. Yes, the May, May 1982 edition of Track and Field News. There we go. That's that's the content you get here. The old school references from digging through the OG resources. Right, and how did but, I find it? Because I was trying to figure out, because that Track and Field News covered Henry Rono versus Alberto Salazar's epic 10K on the track at Oregon in the torrential downpour after the LSU-Oregon dual meet where Henry Rono famously, you know, was dragged out of basically the bars in Palo Alto, brought up to Oregon to pace Alberto, didn't pace Alberto because he wasn't fit, and then beat him and ran like the, the second one or the fourth fastest 10K ever at the time, 27-29, <laughs> in this torrential downpour. Because you you I mean, I've been going on this rabbit hole of figuring out like why was Henry Rono so good when he was good? Uh, and like that's an un, you know, parallel story that exists. And but from that trying to figure this out, I then found that. And that's what we do here at the Scholar Program. We go deep and deeper than deep. That's amazing. That's fascinating. <laughs> that's another good story. We we should have a podcast where we just tell great stories from track and field. Um, <laughs> but you, you know, I think I I think it all gets back to so we're talking excellence here. I think it all gets back to it, you know that idea of okay, how what do these things allow us to do? What are these hammer intervals this these stories of training with the boys and just you know going when they go. It gives us the freedom to perform. Right? Because it's not foreign we're not entirely predictable on it but we know that we can handle it and we know that the consequences like aren't dire we're not gonna die we're not gonna fall apart etc etc we're gonna be all right and i think that is often what allows athletes to reach to that next level is convincing them that they're going to be okay that they can do really difficult things, survive, and 
be all right on the other side of it. And I think so much of our our society and concerns are often protective and often protective in a you know meaningful way, but like protective and preventive and setting expectations um, that kind of limit us instead of allow us to explore. It's sloppy. It's messy. That's training. That's growth. That's progress. I mean, it's, we lived in such a polished, artificially polished world, right? With all these inputs from social media. It used to just be like TV and magazines, right? And you could, you, you'd have to physically find them, seek them out, pick them up and look at them, but they're static images. Now we have video, we have images, we have animated images, whatever, right? But they're not really real. A lot of them are, you know, filtered, polished. And so you, you get this concept in this day and age that everything's smooth sailing, right? And then sometimes someone will post something and they'll be so quote unquote authentic because it just wasn't going perfect. Oh, And it's like, yeah, that's actually life. <laughs> that's that's real. And that's why people resonate with that quote unquote authentic post because we're all going through adversity and difficulties in some way, shape or form and always will. It's survival 101. And so when we think about how do you create situations where it's okay to get messy, where athletes can get messy and it not hurt and they can survive it and see like they actually come out better for it. You have to be very clever as a coach. Like when I was, you know, coaching uh, a lot of developing elite athletes, middle distance runners, I made them all pace races because these are typically athletes who are coming from the collegiate system who weren't top of class, who weren't, you know, winning races. So they weren't used to being in the front. And, so I was like, no, you're going to go pace. You're going to be the leader. And the goal was to make sure they could see I, I can be in the front and it not hurt. And sometimes I say, okay, I want you to pace and stay in it. So you'll lead it out. You'll go faster than you think you're capable of. And you're going to stay in the race and see what happens. Sometimes they bomb horribly. Sometimes they run a PR. It didn't matter. What mattered was they got calibrated to the real competitive situation of identifying themselves as being able to be competent enough to be at the front early and stay at the front. Because at the elite level, you, there really is a, oh, I'm going to stay in the back of the pack and work my way up mentality. Like everyone's really good. They're not going to fall off. So where you are early on on the track, it's probably around where you're going to finish unless, you know, some random health freeze over event happens, which typically won't for highly trained, highly motivated athletes. So you have to establish your position early. And I remember doing this like when I was working with Eleanor Fulton, um, you know, there was a workout where Danny Mackey and I were pacing her uh, for the majority of the workout. I think it was something like four by two mile. Yeah, it was four by two mile on the track at a pretty, you know, decent clip, like 530s or 520s, you know, not a lot of rest. So we lightened the load and paced her through it. Danny happened to be, you know, in town during this, it was like a thing around Thanksgiving, the holidays. But then I, on the last one, I said, all right, we're going to drop out at a mile to go on the last one. And you just got to give it what you got. And she just took off, you know, and at first she's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And I sprung it on her like in the rest interval in between the third and fourth and final rep. Because I oh, you're running a great workout. You know, these are stellar times. Like this is for you. This is really fast. Like this is awesome. And now we're going to increase the difficulty a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> at first she was not pleased about it, but she did it and she was able to do it. And so then when we got in a situation where it was like, oh, you know, there's no rabbit, like we got to uh, UW indoor preview meet and there was supposed to be a rabbit, supposed to lead it out at like nine flat, whatever. Um, you know, and the, the rabbit was some college athlete and, you know, Marisa Powell came up and said, oh, the rabbit's not feeling well. We don't have another one. So there's gonna be no rabbit. And I go, that's fine. Eleanor will just lead it and she'll just go take it. And she did. She just step one the whole way and just chug a chug a chug all the way to a new PR, you know, low nine flat at the time without super shoes. So, you know, could she have done that because she was just physically fit? Well, yeah, but also she was psychologically primed as well through a long progression of patterning because you've got to be able to take control of your own destiny in a race. And this, I think, is the concept that's missed a lot of times in um, the current uh, world of time focused running is you have to take agency and ownership and be independent. That's part of excellence. 
And if you don't have that ability programmed in and you don't have that confidence, that exposure uh, already there, it's going to be wildly difficult to near impossible to do it when it's a highly stressful, highly competitive situation. So as coaches, we have to figure out how do we infuse and inject that agency and independence in athletes in stressful, adverse situations in a safe learning environment and then esteem it and bring energy to it. And as a coach, you're like, yes, that's awesome. Like you got to get super hyped in practice to provide that positive feedback. So the athlete knows that's the way, that's the path. And without that, this idea that, oh, we're going to be really physiologically fit, but not mentally fit. And you can just run an even pace in the perfect, um, you know, setting environment where it's not too cold, not too windy, just right. Goldilocks scenario is very rare to never uh, a reality, even though we want to think that. So we have to overcome even our desires as a coach to want to bulldoze the way for the athletes to make them more robust and capable to be resilient and anti-fragile when it counts, when that gun goes off. Yeah, no, I think you said it, you said it perfectly. It's how do we create people who are robust and anti-fragile? And a lot of them, a lot of that is about putting them in the position to explore. You know, that's what Sarity did well. Like it's not avoidance, it's approach. It's how do we free people up to perform? And as a coach, when you're looking at what do you do in practice, how do you frame things, how do you, you know, um, frame expectations, it's so that they can have that, that freedom to perform so that when there is no rabbit, you just go out and do it, you know? I mean, it's like, that's one of the greatest things about being na- naive and in high school is, well, maybe not now because it's changed, but back in the day, if you wanted to run fast, like, what did you do? Like, I never thought about a rabbit. No. I just said, <laughs> well, you know, I remember at, at, at the district mean, I was like, well, I'm going to try and run under four for it was a 1600. But what did I do? Well, I went out in 59 seconds and tried to keep hammering the whole way, you know, and we're at 401 for 1600 and dragged someone else to 403 and another to 408 or something like that. So, you know, but as we get success, our expectations change, right? We start thinking, well, I need this. I need that. I need this to be easy. I need this weather to be perfect. You know, in high school, I wasn't worried about weather because I lived in Houston, Texas, and it was always hot, humid. So, well, I'm not, I'm not going to get the 50 degree, 60 degree day with perfect weather. Just wasn't going to happen. So like, let's deal with it and go anyway. But I think we lose we lose that as we like get a little success as we think these other things matter and what happens is it ends up constricting us and limiting us and then we're not shooting for actual excellence it's true i mean it's and it's an it's a never-ending learning process like you know i'll end with like kind of this story about like daniel herrera's career right so you know he came i mean people who've listened to this podcast know i work with Daniel, like this entire uh, post-collegiate career up to this point since he graduated from USA. A competent miler, pretty solid guy, um, 338, 1500-meter miler. Um, and the thing about it is like he always operated in a, a zone of comfort because that's what he's told. Like, oh, you want to feel fresh and ready on race day and this and that. I mean, typical um, expectations of a college collegiate program. But the reality was like that wasn't going to get him anywhere in the domestic uh, competitive scene. You know, he needed what we take, what we call big swings. You need to go swing for the fences. And he understood and really embraced that mentality that the only way to hit home runs is to swing for the fences. You can't bunt. You can't give a little calculated, uh, you know, tap to get on base. It's not about getting on base. It's about going for it. And what would happen is initially in his career, he wouldn't go for it. He'd have this hesitation and he'd finish with a nice mark mid-pack but he was not satisfied with that so i go well in order to instill this ability to be a competitor you got to be okay with failure like you know back of the pack because you went for it and the wheels came off like there's no other way you have to just give it a go and slowly and surely like we just started to 
embrace that mentality and embrace that, you know, swing for the fences approach, as we called it, and create different scenarios in practice, but also on race day. And so you'd see high volatility in how he would finish. And sometimes he'd, you know, be up in the front in the podium, especially it was on the roads, or sometimes he'd be like back of the pack after, you know, being up front and leading for two thirds, three quarters of the race. And it wasn't because of a lack of fitness or lack of mental prowess. It was because he was trying to explore how do I solve the problem about putting myself in a position to go for it and then being able to go for it. And even up until his this last year here, um, before he, he's gone into like low retirement as he's gone on to graduate school at Harvard, it's he was trying to he's like, look, I just want to be in positions to win and try to win. I go, okay, I know what that, that means. And so this was seesaw, this back and forth, if you watch it, like it almost I had to talk him off the ledge after a really abject, um, you know, disappointing performance at Portland Track Festival. And then the next week later, you know, at Stumptown, he runs great for him for where he was in his career and at that moment and has a really good process and a P, uh, season's best in the 1500 at that time. But even up until the last days, right, he at one of the sound running meets, he won the mile, beat Garrett Heath. It was a great battle, you know, just out squeaked him. But his last race was like, I think, Falmouth, right? Falmouth mile. And he totally was like, I'm going for it. There's no other reason, you know, and I'm just going to go for it for, until the wheels come off. And he did. And it was awesome. Unfortunately, the wheels came off 50 meters from the finish line. <laughs> and he got whew, passed by like, you know, a bunch of competent domestic milers, which as you will, if the wheels come off. But there was the thing that brought a smile to my heart was in our conversation debrief afterwards, there was no frustration. There was no pouting. There was, you know, no disappointment in the result. He was like, my process was great. I went for it. I just didn't have it the last 10 seconds. And it was just an acceptance of like, this is what you got to do to put yourself in that position. Because if you just try to go for the easy, you know, kind of thermostatic approach, even pace, get a nice time, at that level, you're always going to be mid-pack. Yeah, you might get a gift here and there and like be on the podium, so to speak. But if you never stick your nose in it and you never swing for the fences, you're never going to see what you're truly capable of and you're never going to experience excellence. You may be good, but not excellent. And part of that is understanding it's like yin and yang, right? There's a polarity to it. It's, it's one and the same. There is the, the home run, but there's also the strikeout. You know, there's a blog post I wrote many years ago called the Babe Ruth Effect which essentially equates this, where if you don't swing for the fences, you'll never achieve excellence. You'll play it safe and you'll have a nice little career with some nice marks. But then years later, you'll look back and as you age and get experience, you'll probably regret not really going all in and going for it, even though the results might be a lot more polarized. And that's where a lot of people, you know, tend to criticize Alan Webb's career. But Alan Webb achieved so much, more than a lot of, you know, middle distance runners in America in the last 20 years, even in the last 40 years, precisely because he had this I'm all in mentality. And we would not have the great results, American records that he and that we enjoyed and saw him produce if he didn't have that approach and have those absolute bombs and absolute stinky turds of races as well. Because to know Alan is to know like that is the only way to really do it. And it's okay that it's not like this very um, contrived, manufactured, and sustained level of excellence. We love the concept of the Kachogi. We do because it's like very, you know, homeostatic. He's always kind of this good and you can just depend on that, you know, consistency there. And it's pretty cool. But the reality is most of us are a lot more polarized and a lot more, have a lot more oscillation in performance. And as a coach, it's reminding people that's okay. As long as you gave it the opportunity and you went for it and you, yeah, it might've worked out not in your favor or you might've blown up, but I saw you go for it. And that's the key thing as a coach, the athlete is to create that recognition and esteem that you saw it and applaud that because that's the characteristic you want to build up. And that's the characteristic that will get them 
further and farther uh, down the path to excellence and that mountaintop than saying, oh, well, why'd you go put in that surge or why'd you go for it in here and, you know, start to like berate them and chastise them for actually like giving it a go or swinging for the fences. So if that's your current approach right now, I suggest reconsidering and trying to think, okay, what am I really instilling in the athletes by telling them to take it steady eddy and even all the way through versus trying to create scenarios for them to swing for the fences and see really what they got. Love it. And I think that's what we're, we're getting at here is you got to explore and explore sometimes means taking shots, failing. But if, if, if you don't, if you don't bomb, then you don't know what you're capable of. So it's like, stop playing the status game. Let you get your ego out of it. And if you care about the performance, like explore. So if you want to explore, if you want to see how to become a better coach, don't worry, we've got you covered. The Running Scholar Program, we go deep on not only the physical, the physiological, but also like this episode, the psychological. How do you get the most out of your athletes? And it's not just us. You can ask other coaches who have been there, done that, or explorers themselves and always trying to get better because that's what it's all about. So join us and thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you uh, join us in the scholar clubhouse because that's where this discussion will go.